You're listening to the Gambling Gauchos, part of the Stake in the Plains content network and the Dave Campbell's Republic of Football podcast feed. Just a couple of casino caballeros talking Texas Tech, betting on the Big 12 and beyond. Now, here's Kyle Jacobson and Rob Bro live from the Cardinal Sports Center studio. Welcome to the Gambling Gauchos. I'm Rob Bro. He's Kyle Jacobson. He's Money Mainville and a special guest, Luke Williams, from the BHW Law Firm. You've heard of him. We've got him on now. We'll ask some important questions here in a second. Uh, first of all, guys, how are we doing tonight? Doing good. Doing in the playoffs, two seed. Everybody's happy about that, I'm sure. Congratulations. <laughs> we'll be there. Our Cowboys, Kyle, right? Yeah, our Cowboys. Go Tarrant County. Coach Gass got him a win as well, so we're uh, we're into that as well. Kyle, I'll let you uh, introduce Luke and uh, who he is and what we're doing with him tonight. Sure. Uh, Luke, I'm going to let you do a quick self-intro here in a minute, um, but I wanted to kind of tee this up for our guests. So the elephant in the room, obviously, since we last recorded, is that Pop Isaacs has been named in a civil lawsuit um, alleging sexual assault during the team trip to the Bahamas around Thanksgiving. And based on the reporting that was out there this weekend, sounds like there's a pending Title IX investigation at the university stemming from that allegation. And so we've mentioned this as we've partnered with Barnett, Howard and Williams several times um, over the years that they're a law firm here in the state of Texas, I think is the only law firm in Texas that is certified for Title IX student litigation. And so we're, we're, we have Luke on because we had a lot of listeners kind of curious about what this process entails. I mean, we've seen in the news at other universities, you know, Title IX has, has been part of college athletics for a while now. But if some of our listeners are like me, they might still have some questions about kind of what all this entails. So we're going to discuss some of that with Luke. We're not going to go into the Pop Isaacs investigation or that case specifically, but really just kind of wanted to use our time with Luke to enlighten our listeners on the Title IX process. Um, so, Luke, tell us a little bit about yourself and Barnett, Howard, and Williams, and then we'll ask you a few questions about how Title IX works. Yeah. Well, thanks, Kyle. Appreciate y'all having me on tonight. Um, you know, Title IX is uh, it's it's a, a different animal, so to speak. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of folks will equate a Title IX process with what you know they may understand as court or a legal case, and it's it's really it's not. Um, it is basically Title IX is a federal law and federal regulations that basically tell universities that if they have knowledge of sexual harassment, sexual assault, anything of that nature, that they are required to investigate and look into that matter. Um, and so there's no court when it comes to Title IX. It's all kind of a self-governed process by the university, which is governed by these federal regulations that say, okay, here's how you're supposed to do this. And so um, every university um, has to abide by that federal law. Um, when a Title IX matter comes up, then a, a student has a right to an advisor in the process. That's kind of where I come into play on these cases. Um, I've handled Title IX matters at pretty much every major university across the state of Texas. 
and some universities I'd never even heard of until I actually got the Title IX case. So, I mean, whether it's a massive university um, or just the smallest university in Texas, they're all required to pursue these Title IX matters this way. Um, and so, again, it, it gets confusing because it feels like court. It feels like a court case, but it's not. Um, and at the same time, it's a completely separate thing than, for instance, in the Isaac situations, the civil matter, which is a completely separate process that is independent from what the university's doing in the Title IX context. Did you lose me? Sorry. <laughs> no, I've got you. Sorry, I, it froze for a second here, but no um, it sounds like in the in the Isaac's case, and again, don't want to ask you to go into too much detail with that one specifically, but it sounds like based on the reporting that was out there, um, the family of the alleged victim made the initial complaint to Coach McCasland, who then reported it to Kirby Hocutt and other university officials. Um, what are kind of, is that the most common way that a, at least when it comes to um, student athletes, is that the most common reporting mechanism? Can an alleged victim go directly to a Title IX office? Like, how does this process usually begin at a university? Yeah, I mean, it can begin in a number of ways. Um, specifically, though, university employees are mandated reporters. So if anybody comes to a university employee, whether it's faculty, whether it's someone on the coaching staff and says, hey, I heard about this thing that went on and the employee says, well, that sounds like sexual harassment or sexual assault, then they're mandated to take it to the university and to the Title IX office and say, hey, we've got this. This is this has been reported to us. Um, and and so it can come in either via directly from the complainant in a matter or from anyone else. And I think the unique situation, uh, and let me also preface all of this by saying I don't have any inside knowledge about the Pop Isaac situation. I don't know anything. You guys probably know more about it than I do. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, when when that Title IX complaint come in, comes in, it, it's not necessary that the complainant is a student. Um, it, it, it just relates. And a lot of times the way I describe this is the university's Title IX policy is kind of like a, a code of conduct. And so basically the student is there under this sexual misconduct policy. And if there's knowledge that they violated or potentially violated that, that policy, that's what the university's looking at. So it's not necessarily necessary that the complainant is also a student. And so um, it's it's very like again speculating, but it's very likely that anybody could have gone to McCaslin or any any of the coaching staff and said, "Hey, we heard this," and they would be required to go to the university to the Title IX office say, "We got this information. We're passing it to you, and now it's in the Title IX office." There's been a lot of discourse on uh, X and social media about burden of proof in Title IX cases versus yeah. civil cases versus criminal cases. Can you kind of take us through that and, and maybe how the, the verdict was rendered there? Yeah. And again, we're, we use terminology just like it was a court case. So, for example, verdict, right? Verdict um, in a Title IX case, there's a determination of responsibility, and that's the name for the verdict. But or not responsible. And there's also a presumption 
you know, there's a presumption that a student that has been alleged to have committed a policy violation um, is supposed to be presumed not responsible, which a lot is, is a lot like the presumption of innocence. Um, the, the burden of proof is not the same, uh, but there is a burden of proof, but it's not the same as a criminal case. You know, in a criminal case, the burden is that the, the state in a criminal case must prove an allegation beyond a reasonable doubt. And in a Title IX case, it's a lower standard. It's by preponderance of the evidence, which means, you know, is there 51% amount of evidence that just tips the scale that shows that something is done uh, or has been done? And so um, there is still a burden of proof in Title IX cases, um, but it is a lower standard than a criminal matter in criminal state law, which is beyond a reasonable doubt. So when that uh, decision is reached, who exactly makes that decision? Is it a panel of students? Is it Texas Tech employees? Are they specially trained people in Title IX cases? Uh, basically, like who is ultimately going to make this decision on uh, if any wrongdoing occurred in the Title IX context? So Texas Tech's policy, and, and by federal law, every university has to publish their Title IX policy and make it open to the public. So any of you, anybody, any of your listeners can go on to Tech's website and read through their Title IX policy. Um, their policy is that they will use a panel of four members. Um, and so it, 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 anybody involved in the Title IX process officially with the university must go through federal training um, with Title IX. So it's not going to be four students. It's not going to be four people that they just decide those four are the best people. They have to be people that have gone through mandated federal training that, that have some experience. And in my experience, they're always going to put together a, a panel that that has ex uh, quite a bit of experience with Title IX and, and handling these matters. Um, now, I think probably the big, um, maybe kind of, I, I, would, I would say like bombshell piece of information here that I might be able to shed light on is that because the allegation with Isaacs happened outside of the United States, technically, this is not a Title IX case. So Title IX only retains jurisdiction over incidents that happen inside the United States. So even though it did happen in connection or allegedly happened, whatever happened, allegedly happened in, in connection with a uh, educational program or activity, meaning the, you know, the tournament or the, uh, down at the Bahamas, Title IX is pretty specific and says if it doesn't happen to a person in the United States, Title IX does not apply. Now, so that, again, this is where things get a little confusing because um, I, I don't know what's going on from an official standpoint with the university, but I've handled situations like these at other universities in the past. And so it wouldn't surprise me if there might be news come out later that basically says, hey, the Title IX, formal Title IX complaint was dismissed. Um, because technically, if it happened outside of the country, the formal Title IX complaint should be dismissed. There's no jurisdiction. But what's, what's interesting again about all of that is that even though it doesn't fall under federal Title IX jurisdiction, that doesn't 
prohibit a university from continuing to investigate the matter and continuing to make a determination on the matter under what they call non-Title IX sexual misconduct. So that's a lot of words to say. It really doesn't change a whole lot because the university will still go through their processes of their investigation and a hearing, but it may change some of the procedures when it comes to the hearing. Um, for example, and I'll, I'll try not to be talk, talk too long, be too long-winded here, but for example, in a federal Title IX case, um, a student has a right to have their advisor, which could or could not be an attorney, cross-examine the complainant and any witnesses. Well, if the university deems it's not Title IX, but still pursues it under non-Title IX sexual misconduct, then that student no longer has the right to cross-examine the complainant. So there's, there's some, some real nuances at play here, but I really kind of say that because I think there may be some news come out. Again, I don't know anything about it, but there may be some news come out that says, hey, the university's saying the formal complaints have been dismissed. But if, if you hear that, I think we should say that doesn't mean everything's over. That just means things are going to pursue maybe a little bit different path than, than we would think under the Title IX context. Is there a standard time frame or in Title IX cases, or is it just pretty much case specific? Um, well, every university will, will try to put themselves on a standard time frame. I know um, tax policy is that um, they, they try, to try to investigate and make a decision on these matters within 120 days. Um, some policies, I know Baylor's is 90 days. I mean, the federal law just basically says universities should conduct these matters within a reasonably prompt time frame. And it doesn't give us a definition of what reasonably prompt is. So, um, I mean, the cases I've dealt with very rarely wrap up within that time frame that these universities will say they're trying to get them done in. Um, and if it goes longer, um, the, the, I mean, there's it usually there's no, um, I guess, mechanism by which the university is going to get punished if they go longer than 120 days. So, I mean, my experience is in a case like this with potentially a lot of issues and a lot of eyes on those issues. Um, I don't think it would be finished very quickly. So I guess I've got two more questions for you. The first one sort of follow up on your revelation that Title IX only applies in the United States. Um, to me, there's kind of like three layers to this, a potential criminal case, the pending civil case, which has already been filed, and now the Title IX investigation that sounds like it's outside the bounds of Title IX, so it might be a kind of comparable university code of conduct investigation instead of Title IX. Um, my understanding criminal. Uh, if there were a criminal case, it would kind of require the Bahamas to uh, pursue that and um, basically extradite Pop Isaacs. I, you can tell me what my amateur legal opinion is here, but uh, I would say that because he's a resident of the United States, doesn't travel to the Bahamas frequently, they, I would guess they would say this doesn't present a, um, a safety issue to our residents, so we're not going to pursue this. So it seems like probably the civil case is as high as this will get um how do how do civil cases work when like the complaint is made in a jurisdiction not only different than where the alleged incident occurred but in a different country from where the incident occurred 
in general, civil jurisdiction is going to come down to either A, where the, the incident allegedly occurred, or B, where the parties reside, and primarily where the, the uh, defendant uh, in a civil case resides. So I do think jurisdiction could be established and proper um, in the venue where Pop is currently residing. And I think that's my understanding is that the cases or the suit's been filed in Lovell County, but um, I, I don't know that for sure. But, but I do think that can still proceed from a civil standpoint um, as far as jurisdiction goes. Um, but certainly it presents a whole lot of other issues with the allegation having occurred out of country, um, not just proof allegations, but um, I mean, whether it's criminal or whether it's civil for any allegation to be proved, there should be a pretty thorough investigation and some evidence and obtaining that evidence and obtaining a thorough investigation in a foreign country is is very difficult and and i think makes a, a civil or obviously a criminal matter very very difficult um but i think you're you're exactly right kyle with it being um you know in the bahamas uh, i think the likelihood of anything criminal coming out of it is is extremely low Ryan, Rob, y'all have any last questions? I've just got one more before we let Luke go. I don't want to steal yours if yours is the final question. Right? <laughs> uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be the final question. So if okay. you've got one, far away. I, I was going to ask about in, in Title IX cases, is it generally um, – I, I don't know. Specifically that Pop Isaacs is continuing to play. Yeah. Is that is that normal or is there a due diligence process there? or? You know, I, I think it is normal. Um and uh, without going into specifics, I've dealt with this at another university with athletics before. And, um, you know, the, it goes back to that presumption and that presumption that, um, you know, a student is presumed not responsible really kind of puts a university on its heels to make sure they're not doing anything that punishes a student before anything's even been investigated or determined on a case. And so um, at another major university, uh, I, I had an athlete that was kicked off of the sports team and we pitched a pretty big fit for that specific issue to say, look, there's, there's no practical reason why he's being taken off of the, the team. Um, the only real logical reason is because you're punishing him. And if you're punishing him, then you're not operating under the presumption of not responsible. So I do think it's really more common these days when something's brought up to Title IX for the university to say, hey, look, unless there's a specific reason why he needs to be off the team for practical purposes, I mean, you know, I don't know. There could be a number of things. We can't, the university's got to look at it from the standpoint of their liability too and say, well, we can't take him off the team just for punishment's sake because then we're not, affording him the presumption of not responsible and you know the university could get sued as being in violation of federal law because they're not upholding that presumption well, rob you and i were on the same wavelength because that was my last question so um luke we, we really appreciate you taking the time that was a an illuminating conversation for me and hopefully for our listeners as well um we're gonna kind of move forward with the rest of the episode and maybe add some commentary but uh, before we let you go um 
I don't think our listeners necessarily need a Barnett Howard and Williams plug because they get it on all of our episodes. But if you want to tell us a little bit about y'all's law firm, uh, please feel free. Absolutely. So we are located in Fort Worth. Um, we have an office in Keller. Um, we, our firm handles family law. We handle criminal law. Um, we also handle personal injury across the state. And so um, we're, we're tech grads. Um, we, you know, me and my the original three law partners that make up the name of Barnett, Howard and Williams, we met at undergrad in tech. We went to tech law school um, and uh, we watch as much tech sports as you guys and your fans. Um, but we also, you know, really do our best to, to help out anybody in a tough situation. You know, my kind of um, focus and especially over the last few years has been Title IX. And so, um, you know, I, I've really enjoyed working with students in, in matters that, that, you know, really are, are hard to navigate a lot of times um, with, with these types of issues that are very sensitive. But our firm in general, we're, we, we are a small firm. We handle a lot of cases, but we are a small firm that um, really prides ourselves on our communication with our clients and our personal communication, open communication, um, not being kind of one of these big corporate law firms. Um, you're not going to see me carrying a hammer on TV or anything like that. My representation, I take very personally and um, each of my partners do as well. And so um, we'd be happy to help anybody that, that calls our number um, and picks up the phone for help. So I, I lied a little bit. Uh, we do have one more question for you that, okay. that just reminded me of. It was actually submitted via our listener mailbag. And they okay. wanted to know that if you were uh, like one of those personal injury lawyers that's always on TV, what would your nickname be and what would your shtick be in the commercial? I I have no idea. That's so foreign to me to be that kind of lawyer. So I'm sorry. I have no idea. I, I'm from I'm from post. So your listeners probably have got a speeding ticket in post before driving from Lubbock to either Houston or Dallas or somewhere else. So um, I, w I would want to say like the, 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 the fearsome antelope for the yeah. post antelopes, but you know, our mascot was never very fearsome, but still great mascot. One of the yeah. two antelopes in this, in West Texas. So. Judging on the wall behind you, you could be the hunter or something. Yeah. Yeah. I've got an antelope mounted upstairs. So <laughs> Well, that was Luke Williams, the antelope of justice, joining us here on the Gambling Gauchos. Luke, seriously, thank you for your time. Uh, that was a really great conversation, and we appreciate um, not only you joining us, but everything Barnett Howard and Williams has done for this podcast, and um, hope you have a good rest of your evening. Thanks, guys. Love the show, and keep up the good work. Thanks, Luke. Thank you. All right, Bitch W Law Firm, Luke Williams there. Uh, fascinating conversation. I I know nothing uh, generally about all things. So to, to be able to hear and listen kind of the behind the scenes, not specifically with the Pop Isaacs case, but just things going on in general in Title IX. Title IX is such a foreign concept to me. I, I never dealt with it. Um, you know, we had uh, several situations in the past several years with it, but it's just kind of a, a blank black cloud that just kind of hangs over everything and is just so ambiguous. So it was good to put some actual facts behind it. Uh, Monty. Hey, how you doing, man? We haven't heard from you yet. Hey guys, I was just soaking it all in. That was very enlightening, but uh, glad to be here as always. Always. Well, I mean, should we, 
should we dive right into this? And that was kind of the the expert legal information and you know the kind of rumors were out there when we last recorded, but the actual lawsuit and the actual reporting on it was not. Also got a basketball game. Don't worry, we're going to talk about that too. But y'all want to just dive into some thoughts um, at this juncture of the Pop Isaacs deal? Yeah, I don't know if I have too much to add post Luke Williams there, but um, from what I know, from what I've seen, from what I've heard, you know, I agree with Luke that Pop Isaacs has no qualms to be playing still. And that that process can play out outside of the basketball court. Um, and it will. I think it will play out. So I don't really have much to add to it, Kyle Money. If, if you guys do, I, I would like to hear it. But to me, the the main contest has been should he play or not. I'm fine with him playing, and I would like to see it play out outside of the basketball court. And I don't think it hurts the university for him to play a couple of more games. Yeah, I don't think I have much outside of what Luke shared. I think it's it's pretty refreshing at any time to hear somebody who is very familiar in the field and in the subject actually weigh in on their opinion. Because there's been a lot of opinions being shared um, with people that just don't have the right information about Title IX. And all of us in this, you know, not having the full information and the full access to, you know, what actually happened within the situation. And so enjoyed listening to uh, Luke's thoughts. I, I don't have any on the particular situation. Yeah. I mean, I think you kind of saw during the game, which again, we will talk about um, one of the downsides of this. And I guess let me preface it by saying this, whether the allegation is 100% true, 0% true, or somewhere in the middle, uh, this is a, this is a no win situation. I mean, if if Pop Isaacs is guilty of what he's accused of, then he needs to be done with Texas Tech basketball. And but like we covered, the likelihood of a, a criminal charge is, is probably pretty low. And if this is not true, then um, a young man's reputation has been damaged permanently because there's going to be social media trolls that call him all sorts of things in perpetuity, no matter what evidence comes out and so i i really feel for the alleged victim who's kind of at the center of the complaint um, again whether this is totally true not true at all i think she's been kind of thrust in the middle of this and that is not a good situation uh for her to be in so i really kind of feel for all parties at this point without knowing what the verdict is or what the information is so i'll just put that out there um Luke kind of said something about, you know, I don't know much about this situation. We don't either. We're not, we don't have any kind of like scoop or details that haven't already been reported elsewhere. Um, Texas tech, they put out a statement, Graham McCaslin kind of reaffirmed that statement after the, after the game against Texas. And the heart of that statement was that, uh, you know, the title nine investigation has commenced. And at this point, the university has not been presented with any information that would make pop Isaacs, somebody who is not in good standing with the university and therefore there's no reason to suspend him at this time. Now, of course that could change if new information, new evidence is uncovered. Um, my, my personal opinion on it, again, there are kind of layers to this. There's a criminal charge, there's a civil charge, and then there's title nine. I think if we're at the criminal level and a 
judge or a court kind of has you under indictment or you've been arrested for something, I think that's a high enough sort of standard of proof where you say, okay, you need to sit out while this runs its course. Agreed. But a civil lawsuit, I'm not trying to be flippant about this one in particular, because again, I don't know anything about it, but Rob, if I wanted to file a civil lawsuit against you tomorrow, I could, and it wouldn't mean that anything in it is true. And so there's a much lower kind of standard to start this process with a civil lawsuit. And I, I think, um, I'll tie back to an example in a second, but I think if if there's only a civil lawsuit allegation and no evidence yet, I think it's okay for a player to be playing as that investigation continues. And so I guess that's kind of my only opinion on it is, and that's the great debate. And I, and I, I think there's a fair point on the other side of this that you should be more cautious and say he shouldn't play until this occurs. But Luke kind of ran through it. You have that presumption of not responsible until um, a, a decision is made. And if this were like the Arterio Morris case, which is, that was the obvious kind of comparison against Texas yesterday because of what happened there last year. His case was criminal and there was video and photographic evidence of what he was accused of on Instagram. It was later deleted. If there was a video or photographic evidence of something related to this pop Isaacs allegation, that would change everything for me, but at least that the public is aware of right now, there's not. So that's kind of where I'm at. I I don't love anything about this. And like I said, it, it's bad for all parties involved, no matter to what extent this is true. But it sounds like to me, um, as soon as Grant McCaslin was made aware, he did the right thing by making Kirby Hocutt aware. And they both did the right thing by making Title IX and the other appropriate offices aware. And if they say at this point, we don't have a reason to remove Pop Isaacs from the team because he's still in good standing with the university, I get the optics. I get that the opposing fan bases are going to give Pop that treatment that we saw him get in Austin. But I think based on what's available to us now, it's it's okay for him to continue playing. Yeah, and I, I think you can double down there and say that Texas Tech has handled this the correct way. If there is a correct way to handle something like this, I, I again, want to reiterate, uh, I... I don't know anything about the case, but from what I've seen, just straightforward wise, not from message boards, not from our discord, but in the public eye with Texas tech statements and the civil case, it's been handled correctly. And I think it will be continued to handle correctly. And I, I want to applaud Grant McCasland for how he's handled it in the media. Uh, speaking highly of Drew Steffi on his way out, not, implying that anything had gone on. And then after the statement, just directing media back to the statement. You don't need to say anything new every time they ask you about it. You don't need to come up with a new answer. Just say, yeah, we've put out a statement. This is what's happening. Let's move on. So. Yeah, I, I think that was, I thought that was a good response from McCaslin when he was asked about it after the game. He said, the university's put out on a statement on this. You know, I stand by the statement and I'm, I don't really have anything else to say at this time. And I, I guess a, a few other things we should run through in case some people maybe weren't following the news as closely as us, just to kind of give the background on what is alleged in the lawsuit and what we do know. Um, the complainant, uh, age 17 at the time of the alleged incident, at the age of consent in the Bahamas is 16, age of consent in Texas, where both 
of them reside. 17, um, it was reported by, I think, ESPN and The Athletic that in the lawsuit, it alleges a Texas Tech booster provided alcohol for um, Pop Isaacs and the complainant, as well as, I think, a couple other uh, people under the age of 21, which I think the drinking age in the Bahamas is 18. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. We I think it's been four games since McCaslin was made aware of the allegation and reported it up the food chain to Kirby in the Title IX office. That five, uh, five, now. Yeah. five now. Yeah, good point. Um, that, I guess the last thing I'll say on this, uh, I think those are the only quote unquote facts we we're aware of right now. But I I really um I don't know how to phrase this. It it would it would surprise me. And it would it would disturb me if my read on Grant McCaslin is wrong. And he does not seem like the kind of guy to me who, if he thought there was a a good enough chance that this allegation against Pop Isaacs were true, uh, that he would continue playing him. And I guess I'll maybe calibrate that a little bit. The decision may sort of be out of his hands to some extent, like Luke was talking about a university's liability and how they treat the accused. It could be the case that McCaslin doesn't want to play him um, or doesn't want to keep him on the team, but yet he's being advised by like the university's legal counsel. Like you have to treat him just like you did before the, I don't know, but all that to say, no matter what we learn two, three, four months from now, when this is hopefully uh, concluded, uh, it would, it would really kind of jar me a little bit if, if McCaslin didn't handle himself appropriately. I mean, he just seems like such a stand-up guy that um, it's important to him to handle situations like this correctly and ethically. If it comes out that like he did something wrong or or played a guy that he knew there was a good amount of evidence against, it would, it would really kind of taint my, my um, perception of him because to my knowledge, his entire career and his entire time at Texas tech, has been totally above board, you know, really kind of beyond reproach. Um, so that gives me a little bit of confidence um, or a little bit of comfort maybe in this. But anyway, that, that's kind of a summary of where things are at, I guess. All right. This is going to be awkward, but I'm going to throw an e-break here. Screeching halt. Shift to the game. Um and we'll start with somebody other than Pop Isaac so we can kind of get away from the situation and get back into it. Uh, but Warren Washington played his best game as a Red Raider by far uh, against Texas. And I'm not saying he's going to have a Bryson Williams-type Big 12 run, but it kind of reminds me of that, of, of where he kind of struggled a couple of non-con games, played really well post-Michigan, and had really turned it up against Texas. Uh, Money, I, I know you think the same probably. How good was Warren Washington this weekend or this yeah, weekend, Saturday? Yeah, absolutely. I, I wrote an article for the Gambling Gachos Patreon subscribers last week. And in that, I talked about Warren Washington kind of being the most improved player throughout the non-conference schedule in my eyes. Um, he is just on an absolute tear right now. Did not miss a shot from the floor against Texas. And he drew a ton of fouls. He shot eight free throws, which is more than anybody else in a game which is a huge, huge tip on the hat whenever you're playing with guys like Pop Isaacs, Joe Toussaint, even Max Smith on the other side, Tyrese Hunter, guards that can get to the rim at an elite level. Just kind of shows you what kind of pressure he was putting there down low. And that kind of surprised me 
um, not necessarily because of what I think of him as a player, but really just because it it seems like a 360 from what Tech has done well offensively the last couple of games. And that's really been orienting from the perimeter and really working with your guards to get that offense going. But um, if you paid attention in the second half, Fran Fraschilla was talking over a replay and he was talking about how in practice he had seen that Tech was working on attacking the hedge on the screen a lot. Um, I think he said it was on Friday that he got to watch practice and saw that a lot. Went back and watched the game today. Second possession of the game is a Warren Washington pick and roll on Pop Isaacs where Max Acemas, excuse me, is guarding Pop. He's got to go over the screen because if he goes under, Pop is going to shoot it from the top of the key. And so he goes over the screen. Caden Shedrick gets put in the hedge because he can't drop or else Pop is going to take the shot or take a couple of dribbles and then get a floater. And like it opens up a wide open look for Warren Washington. Now he wedgied that dunk. But like from the get go, it was clear, like, okay, there's a clear plan of attack from this offense. Doesn't really look the same as we've seen the last couple of games, but like, welcome to the Big 12. This is what you've got to do game after game. If you think that your offense is going to work the exact same um, in the Big 12 as it did in the non conference, you are uh, misguided. And I think this was one of the better offensive game plans that I've seen from a tech coach in big 12 play in a while. I mean, this was impressive, maybe even since that Bryson Williams game against Texas, where it was really evident they were getting it to him on the block. He was getting high quality shots. This is um, just a really, really impressive game from a scheme standpoint, the way he adapted and the way that Texas really took text perimeter away and i want to share some more about that later but yeah warren washington really impressive around the rim and that was a theme joe toussaint darion williams pop isaacs robert jennings all also made multiple shots at the rim against texas so really impressive game plan and the players clearly responded and executed it well well i think what you're talking about there is, is so noticeable and apparent even to kind of the average viewer like me that McCaslin is so active coaching all 40 minutes of the game. Like he never quote unquote takes a break and like, I'm going to go get a glass of water or something real quick. Like he is coaching individual players like all the way through timeouts and then into the next couple of possessions after the timeout. And it's like every single possession to him is like a new data point. And if he sees it, okay, they're doing something a little bit different now. We've got to adjust here. Like he is, hundred miles an hour all over that and on top of it. And so it's refreshing to see. I think that Adam's got some grief for the body language last year, just kind of winning or, and something to be said about composure as well, that like you're not freaking out on the bench all the time. Cause there are coaches that certainly overdo it. Then you know, Adams had this very calm demeanor. Like I'm just going to kind of stand resolute here, but McCaslin coached an incredible game. And, you know, the start was a little bit like first 10 minutes looked a little, like it was our first conference game on the road. And then after half, we kind of squandered that lead. But the final 10 or 15 minutes of both halves, it was a pretty steady upward trajectory of the team just getting better and better, more comfortable and more comfortable. And like I think we have good players. I'm not trying to diminish what they did at all. But you can tell the fingerprints of the coaching staff were all over that win, and they deserve a huge amount of credit for that. There were two coaching moments that I want to highlight what you're talking about uh at one point i believe it was in the first half darian williams did something on the floor 
and Coach McCaslin had him in an absolute blender. It was right before a timeout. They went to the timeout. Williams kept trying to turn toward the huddle, and McCaslin was just following him around to keep his eye contact. Uh, and then McCaslin will just have his back completely to the game, coaching the bench. And I guess it's Coach Buff is actually coaching on the floor. And then you have McCaslin just completely ignoring the game to to get back into what he wants to do when those players are back on the floor. So uh, they are truly coaching all all the uh, all the time in the clock. I mean, it's almost biblical. It's like the one lost sheep versus the herd. He's like, he's not going to move forward with coaching the rest of the game until he straightens it out, whatever it was with Darion Williams. Um, and so it, it was pretty incredible. And like, you're not going to last on this team unless you not only can tolerate being coached hard, but kind of like being coached hard. Cause I mean, I can't even imagine what the practices are like, or like the off season workouts, the intensity is just so crazy. And if you don't feed off of that and that doesn't make you better or challenge you as a player, you're just not going to make it on this team. Yeah. And it's one of those things when it's all said and done and you win by 11, when the final buzzer sounds, you can go party in the locker room and like, nobody's upset. Oh, coach was yelling at me all game. It's like, no, we just want a conference game on the road. And so I, I think that he's probably going to be very intentional. We're still learning about McCaslin since it's his first year on the job. But as, well, I think what we'll notice about his roster construction and the team culture going forward is it's going to be a lot of guys that can take some hard coaching like that. And I, I think most fans really liked what they saw there. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a good point, too, because in that second half, when his back was kind of to the floor and he was focused on the sideline, he was talking mainly to what I saw was uh, Lamar Washington, who played about eight minutes in that game. And so just pretty incredible seeing, you know, this is one of my young players. I've got to focus, you know, here on a couple of possessions. Hey, here's how we adjust to playing these elite Big 12 guards and Hunter and Ace Miss. Here's some pointers. And then. The Darion Williams thing has been a theme throughout this season. I really do think they see something in him. I think they want to try and coach him as hard as they can, and I don't blame them. Uh, it, it's really easy to forget that he's a true sophomore. He he won Mountain West Freshman of the Year last year as a true freshman. That is a stark, stark contrast to a lot of the other guys on this roster who you know, are 22, 23 You've got a young Darion Williams who's still kind of trying to figure it out. And I think they're trying to get as much as they can out of him because his top level of his ceiling is really, really high. And I don't think he had his best game against Texas, but his versatility and what he offers you is really, really valuable. My high school football coach was the kind of coach that he would he would sort of calibrate how hard he coached you to how much he expected of you. So we had guys on the team that, you know, it's high school, so you can't cut anybody that had no idea what they were doing out there. And he kind of expected them to screw up. And he's not going to jump all over them for running the wrong route or something. And then he had other guys, like if your shoes were tied incorrectly, he was on you about it. And I think gas is like that with pretty much every single player. Like there's a certain standard that we're going to play at. And if you're not meeting that, either you're not going to play or I'm going to coach you really hard until you're ready to get to that standard. And he's, he's just not going to take anything less. And I, I freaking love it, honestly. Yeah. Um, can we talk for one second? I don't know if it's linguistics or uh, genealogy, but how Abmus is pronounced Asmus really bothered me. And I went and looked it up. Uh, allegedly, there's a, a, a character in the German language 
It's called the Shafarfus Shif- S. That looks Nailed like a it. B. That looks like a B. And uh, when they came over, I guess from Germany back in the day, they just turned it into an S or a B. And so now it's Asmus. I don't understand it, but I had to look it up. Yeah, I, I had no idea, but Mainville was saying Asmus, and so I just figured Same. he was correct. But I didn't know how that math added up. Yeah, so it's a, a German origin. Yeah. yeah. What's up, Pistol Rick? Uh, anyways, uh, other players who played well. We haven't talked about Joe Toussaint yet, I don't believe. Uh, Joe Toussaint and Pop Isaacs. We talked about it going into the game that Asmus and Tyrese Hunter are one of the best front courts in the Big 12. Uh, I don't know if we said that, but we have heard that. Uh, they were absolutely outplayed by Toussaint and Isaacs, in my opinion. I wouldn't know. I don't know if I would say absolutely outplayed, but I think you went blow for blow with them. Like I think their final stat lines were really good, and had you not gotten that kind of performance out of Isaacs and Toussaint, you know, you might have been in the danger zone there. But yeah, your front court um, or back court really, I think, answered the call there, and it was impressive. And uh, I don't know, did Tyrese Hunter have a good game against Tech last year? Because his Iowa State. Outings against us were not, not that good. No, I believe his first game was bad, and maybe he had, he scored ten in the later game. But okay. there were three well, or four games in a row where he was awful against Texas Tech. Well, he finally had a pretty good outing against us, and Ace Miss. Uh, I think he actually broke a couple NCAA records, or at least moved up on the NCAA all-time okay. career leaders. I have a few thoughts on that. Go ahead, JJ Redick. Did he play a full four years? Is he a full four-year player? I I do not know. But Aceves has played, what, seven years now? And he's just now passing J.J. Redick? I mean, come on. He's he's played 16 seasons in college basketball. Of course, he's going to be breaking some long time. If he breaks a single-season record, we'll talk about it. But that is just – that's one of those things. We're going to – like, we're going to be talking about Bo Nix and Alan Bowman and all these longevity things. Is Bo Nix better than – uh, any of the quarterbacks who've ever played in college football, like these, like uh, these longtime record holders, Case Keenum or uh, Colt McCoy, who had 40 wins. Bo Nix got to play 77 college games or something crazy. I get what you're saying. On in basketball, though, JJ Redick had like a 20 foot three point line, and that's kind of it. Like, if you go watch his highlights, you're like, Is it was a three point line really all the way up there before? And so I get what you're saying for sure. He also like started out at Duke. Ace started out at Oral Roberts, so I, I respect the guy who kind of climbed the ladder. But but you're right. Like if if Taj Brooks passes Byron Hansford, we're talking five years versus three. If Hansford got to play five, like nobody would ever sniff that record. So I, you're making some good points. I want to look at some games played between JJ Redick and, and Ace Miss. But anyway, I, th- I thought Ace Miss and Hunter played well. But Tucson and Isaacs played a little bit better. And then Warren Washington, just stellar um, against. That's, that's kind of what worried me was that, you know, you have one guy who can play that position for you pretty much. And Texas could rotate in multiple guys. And I just thought, man, I don't know if their depth is going to wear us down in the second half and if we're going to be outmatched down low. But 100% held his own, threw an elite horns down at the end. And this is a good point, actually. Um, a good Twitter follow named Tricia Wormstein said that, this was I hadn't thought about this before, but 
in the portal era, when you're bringing in guys that, you know, or maybe at their third school or it's their first year at tech or something to not only like understand the rivalry implications of tech versus Texas, but buy into it to the extent that they're throwing horns down and like absolutely juiced up that they won by double digits in Austin is pretty cool. Like you'd love to see that kind of buy-in. It's a game that means more to the fans than, you know, Iowa state or West Virginia. So the fact that it seemingly means more to the players, I think, is also another symptom of just a strong culture and everything. So that that was good to see. Got an apology. Max Eastwood has done it in two less games than J.J. Redick. J.J. Redick played 139 college games, and Max Eastwood is at 137 currently. And and a longer three-point line. So I, ha- I have a coworker. She uh, <laughs> I can say what I'm wrong. She played basketball at I think Grapevine High School and then TCU back in the day. And she's she used to hold all the Grapevine High School records, and now she says she's like top five. But she goes, anybody who's passed me had a three point line, and it was only two points when I played. So she was like, I'm still the the record holder in my own heart, you know. <laughs> Uh, this question, can we discuss how the new arena was supposed to be more intimidating because it's smaller, but it's just quieter. I have some thoughts. The Moody center is way better than the Frank Irwin center. And I think it is a much better atmosphere. I do. I think the Moody center is just hand over fist. I don't know if it's because more people come because it's nicer or if it is just smaller and they pack them in so low that the student section is much closer to the action. Uh, in the new Moody Center. I've not been to the Moody Center, but on TV, it is a much better product uh, than it was at the Frank Irwin Center. And maybe it's just they've had a little bit of success since they moved over, and so they're they're kind of hot right now. But the Moody Center, or the the Frank Irwin Center, was so bad the last couple of years with Shaka. Um, And the Moody Center, in my opinion, has been a, a success. Money, what do you think? Because I, I have a take here. I think the screens are cool on the to fill the empty seats. I, I like that. Art it's uh, creative. All right, here's the situation, fellas. Uh-huh. The United Spirit Arena is a basketball arena that just so happens to host concerts such as George Strait, Taylor Swift, and Paul McCartney. Okay, I see where you're going. The Moody Center is a concert venue sure, that hosts acts such as, I don't know, maybe Taylor Swift, George Strait, and Paul McCartney. Yeah. And they just happen to play the University of Texas basketball games there. So that's that's my beef with it. Like, It's kind of like watching one of those bowl games at Fenway Park. You're like, they're playing football on a baseball field. Yeah. And like the dimensions are correct, and they can pull this off, but this is a baseball field. That's what, even if Texas has a top 10 team like they did last year at the beginning of the season with Beard, they're still playing at a concert venue that just happens to have a basketball court on it. Yeah, I I understand where you're coming from. You're making great points. It just, to me, looks looks good on TV. I think they did a good job with it. Uh, as opposed to the Coliseum-esque Frank Irwin Center that was way past date and just didn't look good on TV because it was so empty. That's fair. Uh, Ryan chimes in, says Matt's cooking the Timberwolves right now, Kyle. Congrats on your Super Bowl. I think we're still tops in the West. So 
we're focused on winning championships. Everybody else is just gunning for our spot. So, I have one question on the mask. When did they start calling Kyrie Irving Kai K A I? Is that a is that a thing? Is that his new name? Are we just going with Kai here? Money, you might know. This the social media team just calls him Kai. I feel like that's been a nickname for him for a little while. Okay, there you go. Uh, pronunciation of Ludwig Ober. We called him Aberg his entire collegiate run, and now apparently it's Ober. So there it is. Ryan just says no. <laughs> Whatever that is. Uh, starter in response to my Moody uh, looked like a wine and cheese crowd. Yeah. I think uh, it's been Kai since Cleveland. I just have not paid attention to Kyrie Irving, I guess. I got two final thoughts on the game because there's some really interesting tidbits in here. So uh, I'll I'll get us out of the rabbit hole here. Uh, For one, I think that Tech's offense has done two things really well this year, and that's been move the ball and shoot the three. Those have been two things that have consistently stuck out to me game after game throughout the non-conference. In this game, Tech only had an assist on 28.6% of their made field goals which is by far the lowest in a game this season. The next lowest is 41.7 against uh, UNI in the Bahamas, where you looked pretty out of sync um, for most of those 40 minutes. I mean, the team only finished with eight assists and nine turnovers, and Joe Toussaint had five of those. And so Texas putting that much pressure on the perimeter, I think really slowed down Tech's ball movement, but the counter there was obviously to go to the pick and roll, get the ball inside. And so I think that was a really, really good chess move there. And this team didn't really shoot the three as much as we've seen them do the last couple of games. They shot it well. They were 7 of 15, but only 28% of their field goals came from three, which is the second lowest rate on the season behind only the San Jose State game, which was by far your worst offensive game of the season. You scored 22 fewer points in that game than you did against Texas. And so... Even with the ball movement not going the way you wanted to, Tex or Texas defense putting some pressure on the perimeter, and then obviously your three-point shot not getting the same volume. Texas is running kind of a no-middle defense. Um, you can see guys flipping their hips to the baseline. It, it's reminiscent of a beard era no-middle. It's, it's a little softer, um, almost the way that Baylor runs it, but... I think those two things are what the no middle defense aims to get rid of is obviously penetration and then open shots. Tech wasn't very good about taking away the open shots while they run it. Um, But Texas did in this game. And I thought McCaslin had a really good pivot to get the ball inside, feed it to Warren Washington, get him easy looks and and get him to the line. I love the confidence this team plays with too. I don't, I don't know if y'all had a similar gripe during some of the Beard teams and the Adams teams. But whatever we were trying to do on offense, when we did get a semi-open look, guys would just kind of pump fake themselves until they were covered. And it was like, yeah, dude, just shoot it. Like, you might not make it, but like we got an open-ish look, just take it. And this team, like, we've got Chance McMillan flying off of a screen 30 feet from the basket, chucking up threes. It's like, if anybody – if he was supposed to – I don't know, be a little bit hesitant to shoot that. Somebody forgot to tell him because we just fire and like kind of it's like don't care. It's like DGAF, you know, and like there's going to be nights where we go 22% from three and it's going to be ugly. We weren't shooting at volume this game, like Ryan said, but I think he made 47% or 
or 46% maybe of your threes. And they just, it's not just Chance McMillan. I mean, it's Toussaint, it's Isaacs. Um, they just – like if they were supposed to stink on offense and be afraid to shoot, nobody told them. And it's almost – I don't mean this in a demeaning way at all. It's almost like unearned confidence. Like until this game, they kind of had no skins on the wall, and yet they're playing what appears to be super confident basketball, which I think you need to do. Um, so anyway, that, that, that was good to see. And I, I guess my last thought on the game, kind of looking ahead, I, I can't help myself, but uh, like I know this Big 12 schedule is an 18-round fight, and we use that analogy all the time. We start 1-0 and on the road, and I'm like looking ahead, like, all right, where are, where are we on bracket matrix? How far do we move up in Ken Palm? But Ryan even talked about this before the Texas game, that if you do pull off that win on the road, you've got a real shot to start 3-0 and in conference play. Your next two games are in Lubbock against – Kansas State and Oklahoma State, teams that are still probably pretty good, even if they're lower half of the Big 12. We know how deep this conference is. But if you can hold serve at home and get to 3-0, and that kind of gives you some margin for error in the final 15 rounds. That 599 number is still what sticks in my head is you know what will be good enough to get you into the tournament. And a 3-0 and start out of the gates, knowing that the schedule like the last four or five games is – supposed to ease up on you would be a heck of a position to be in versus you know, kind of what it looked like when you're sitting there losing to Northern Iowa on Thanksgiving day, you know, you're certainly not thinking, yeah, we're going to beat Texas on the road and then, you know, start conference play three and O or anything like that. So I, I was toying with this. I love to manipulate T rank with like the most favorable start date and end date to see how good of a team we are. Cause you can, it'll measure all teams efficiencies through any date range you want. And so I was like, well, let's go back to the Michigan win. And where do we rank since then? That's actually a pretty good sample size. I think it's nine games. I think we're 18th maybe in total efficiency on T rank since that game. And then I spliced it some other ways and you were like 13th, 15th. If you're, if you're legitimately a top 20 team without Devin Cambridge in year one, like that's incredible. And I don't, I don't know if I'm, like there yet, but my expectations have now shifted, even just with this one conference game and what we have ahead of us in the in the near future here. Like you should be, I think, thinking NCAA tournament, and we have a path to get there that's very feasible that doesn't require some crazy, like, oh, we have to go beat Kansas at Allen Fieldhouse or something like that. So huge win for, I think, everybody's confidence and morale and your NCAA tournament resume. Last thing I'll say, I was looking at, Quad one, quad four, all that. Yes, this was a quad one win, your first of the season. You have a couple quad one losses. Uh, Butler qualifies. Man, you want that one back, don't you? And I think Nova is still a quad one loss. Um, Michigan quad two. Northern Iowa is quad three, but only by six spots in net. If they move up from 106 to 100, that'll move to quad two. And then I really thought you had – on the bottom quarter of your schedule enough juice that you wouldn't play nine quad four games like you have all these years. Right now you do have nine quad four games. A couple of those are close-ish to moving up. San Jose State and Oral Roberts, they both need to move up like a couple dozen spots. Might be possible if they go on a little bit of a run here in conference play. And I think Vandy would have to move up from 245 to 200 to make that one a quad three since that was a neutral site. So I don't love that kind of early to be looking at resume, but nine quad four games is just, it's tough when you've got other teams playing four or six. 
So hope a couple of those move up, you know, a slot throughout the season. But at least you're on the board with a quad one win pretty early here. And obviously you're going to have plenty of opportunities for more in Big 12 play. You say late. Um, Joe Lenardi does it the day after the tournament. So I think you're right on line there that you can do your your bracket uh, bracketology. That still burns me up when I see uh, when I see Joe Lenardi ripping off brackets on April twelfth. It's like, dude, the season just finished. Uh, some questions here uh, is uh, well, statements really. BYU basketball might be fraudulent. I did want to talk about that after the first weekend of Big Twelve play. Uh, any surprises? Any reaffirmations that you saw in the Big 12 matchups. I know the Big 12 is weird and stuff happens week to week, but after one weekend, is BYU a fraud? Is Houston the best team? That kind of stuff. Yeah, I think a result that really stood out to me was Oklahoma State taking Baylor into overtime um, in Stillwater, obviously not winning the game. I thought they honestly could have did not get a good quality shot at all um, at the end of the clock. And I can imagine that there's a lot of fans in Stillwater who have grown tired of that the last couple of years of just in-game adjustments, end-of-game adjustments, and and generating quality shots. But I think to take them into overtime, uh, Baylor shot terrible from three, but so did Oklahoma State. Really landed... uh, and leaned on their big man down low, freshman uh, Brendan Garrison. He's a big dude. Um, He had his best game of the season as a true freshman against Baylor. So it's a really impressive statement game from him. I think he's going to be a a tough assignment for Warren Washington coming up. Uh, And he's that's really going to be, I think, where this game comes down to because he he scored 20. He did a lot of heavy lifting for Oklahoma State. Doesn't really look like they have another guy on that roster who's who's going to be able to do that down low. And so I think Garrison and Washington is a matchup that I'm really looking forward to seeing um, here in a few days. Another question. Uh, did TCU get screwed at Allen Fieldhouse? We're going with, with yes there. You both just kind of shook your head. Yes, but like no worse than anybody else gets screwed there. So I mean, when you go there, it's just baked in. You have to beat them by 10. Like the one time we won there, I remember thinking, like we, we basically got to blow them out. Otherwise, like if they're within four down the stretch, then the refs are going to do what they do. And that team did keep them at arm's length the whole time. But yeah, I, I was – I wasn't watching that game, but I saw the score. I think TC was up by like four, five, three and a half minutes left, something like that. And I was about to go for a walk with my family. And I was like, I'm going to come back. And Kansas will have won this game by one or two points on some controversial call. Yep. Get home, check Twitter. Everybody's talking about this phantom flagrant foul that Dickinson traveled on the last play of the game. I was like, yep, there we go. That's It's so predictable. It's kind of funny and also just kind of screwed up that they get away with it so much. But I thought TCU – Looked good. Um, of course, they play well at Allen Fieldhouse. They beat them last January in in Allen Fieldhouse. So I, I don't know TCU top half of the conference, top third of the conference. There with Houston and Kansas, uh, Cincinnati middle of the conference, middle to low of the conference above BYU. Uh, again, one one result does not make a power ranking, but uh, maybe after the next couple of weeks, we can start power ranking the Big Twelve. 
Well, what do we have, like nine teams in Ken Palm top 30? So, yeah. so even when you're talking middle of the conference, you're talking about teams that legitimately think they can make the Sweet 16. It's crazy. A couple of portal notes. Texas Tech grabbing Nevada defensive tackle and a TCU defensive back uh, in the last week. And a West Virginia defensive end has committed to Cincinnati. So I thought that was interesting. Look, if the battle for the 38th or 39th parallel didn't have enough juice already. Absolutely. You can imagine what that game is going to be like next year if they play each other, because I don't know if they do. Jared Bartlett going from West Virginia to Cincinnati. So there you go. Uh, any thoughts on the Nevada defensive tackle or. Oh, wait, sorry. Uh, Alex wants us to clown on Brock Cunningham. There was a, a perfect shot. Uh, in the in the game where he is complaining about his fourth or fifth foul. I think it was his fourth foul. He's complaining to the official, and they show his stat line, zero points, four fouls. And he's just like looking at the camera. I, wa- I reached out, grabbed my phone really fast, got on ESPN, and tried to screenshot it, but I couldn't get there in time. Well, the ref was telling him, I'm not an expert lip reader, but the ref was telling me, he was like, you know what you did. You know what you did. He was trying to complain about the call and the – yeah. At some point, if you haven't like impacted the stat sheet at all, except for your personal fouls, you don't talk to the refs. Yeah. You know, like don't leave the only statistical category that you're going to mark off in this game up to somebody's judgment. Even if you think you got host on that call, it's like, yeah. what are you doing out there, man? And I, honestly, I'm not trying to clown on him like Alex wants us to. When he fouled out, I thought it was bad news for us because he was going to stay on the floor until he fouled out, which I thought was a positive development for us. Right. Like Mainville tweeted during the game, he was like, yeah, he plays way too many minutes. Like, no, keep him out there. He doesn't play enough minutes. But you're not clowning on him. Uh, I will say this. You outscored their bench as well. You scored 20 points uh, to their – I had it pulled up earlier, nine or something. I thought that was really impressive. Uh, and then you both had a starter not score, Curran Walton and uh, Brock Cunningham. A little bit surprising Kerwin didn't score, but he, he played well. He didn't get a turnover there, Money. He jinxed him a little bit. Yeah, it's the first one of the season. I, I think that's what threw him off for this game. But uh, I'll cherry pick a new stat for him. We'll get that one onto Twitter and get him going again. But no, I think I think that's an interesting thing because I think if you, if you look at the box score, it can kind of be easy to say like, okay, you've got Kerwin Walton. He played, you know, 29 minutes. He scored no points. And you got Brock Cunningham. He played 32 minutes and he didn't score any points. Man, Kerwin Walton coming into this game, leading the nation in offensive rating. He is Tech's only true wing on this roster. He has to play as much as he can against Big 12 teams. And I, I just still don't understand how this Texas program, who has as much resources and draw and just everything at their recruiting disposal, is still justifying playing a guy like Brock Cunningham 32 minutes in a Big 12 basketball game that was close. And I, I understand the culture aspect of it. He played some good defense against Kerwin Walton, had a good rebound over him, one of his two. Um, I think it was an over the back, but that's all right. Um, but for 32 minutes on a on a team like Texas is a sign that things are probably not as deep on your bench as they should be. If you had told me before the game that we were going to get out rebounded by 11 or 12 
but win the game by 11 points and shoot 46% from three, I would have thought Kerwin Walton went like six for 10 from, from deep. And so the fact that he didn't, I think he was 0 for 2, and that, that was it. The fact that he didn't really impact this game um, is hopefully a good thing going forward because I think you're going to get more out of him. I do think the rebounding is a bit of a concern. You know, unfortunately, you're just not built to be an elite rebounding team, especially when you're playing four guards at a time with Warren Washington. And so, you know, this isn't like some perfectly well-rounded team or anything. They're, they're going to have their issues that they've got to cover up in some ways. But, you know, I think you can live with getting out-rebounded if you win enough other aspects of the game. And I think that's basically what they managed to do in Austin. You know, I don't know how easy that's going to be to replicate if the rebounding discrepancy is that wide throughout conference play. But, you know, I also don't see it changing. So you've just got to stick to what you're good at and kind of capitalize there if you can. All right. Uh, now, we've been teasing phase five. Are we going to do a mailbag this episode or save it to Wednesday? Up to you. Do we want to ever say what phase five is or just? Well, I think we will on Wednesday if we if we move, uh, if we do it, if we pull the trigger. Are we doing it? Well, we'd have to tell them before Wednesday if we're going to. Right. We Well, we can say it now. Do you want to? It's up to you, man. Might as well. I don't know if anybody's listening 69 minutes into this. We can maybe announce it more than once. We have 70 live viewers right now. All right. Well, we'll do a quick little recap for those who don't know what the first four phases are. I guess phase one, in hindsight, was just Rob and I starting a podcast. Phase two was bringing in an elite basketball mind, one Ryan Mainville. Phase three, we teamed up with... Some other Texas Tech content creators, 23 Personnel, Dinger Derby, Sink Scarlet, under the Staking the Plains banner. Staking the Plains was a website created and built by uh, Seth Jungman. Phase four, we joined the Dave Campbell's Republic of Football podcast, which is where you're listening to this on the feed with uh, one other podcast for every FBS school in the state of Texas, and we're honored to be affiliated with the Bible of Texas football. Uh, so what I like about the first four phases is each one is kind of built off of the last, and hopefully phase five is similar. So in my opinion, Rob, you can correct me or add on to this if you want. I would say two recent developments have kind of brought us to this point. The first, we like to hear feedback from listeners and do what we can to improve the product uh, to the best of our ability with what's in our control. And so we do two episodes per week, which is a pretty, pretty good clip to maintain. You know, a lot of podcasts do one a week and even that is a lot of work. And so it's uh, come to our attention in the Republic of football feed. When you're combing through 13 plus podcasts, it can be hard to find us twice a week amid all the other good content there. And so that's totally fair concern from listeners. Um, the affiliation with Dave Campbell's is super important to us. So, so we can't just like move away from that and post somewhere else, but we also want to accommodate the wishes of our listeners. And so hopefully phase five achieves that second development this is where I'm going to riff for a little bit. Rob, tell me if I'm out of line here. But this website, X, formerly known as Twitter, is 
like off the rails has gone downhill so fast. It, it's crazy to me. Uh, it's not a political statement. I don't care about Elon Musk or any of that. It's, it's just like as a content creator, X used to be a really, really effective platform to provide commentary on the news and engage with anybody listening to this. It was like super easy to do. The engagement was really high. Now, if we post anything on Twitter, the first two replies are like a cryptocurrency bot and a porn bot. Yeah. The, there are like people that used to interact with us all the time that I don't think hardly ever see our tweets anymore because they used to, you know, just really commonly interact with us. Now they don't. The, uh, the like, I think just the customer service of the new platform is also bad. Like we tried to unsubscribe from Twitter blue a year ago and they won't let us like, we don't want the blue check anymore. Cause it like prevents you from changing your profile picture and your bio and stuff. And they won't take it away from us. Like we haven't even paid them. I don't think we pay for the service and yet we're still stuck with Twitter blue. The algorithm is all like, if it doesn't shock somebody and it's not a video of somebody like, falling off a building or something, the algorithm isn't going to show it to you. And so unless you're just tweeting over and over about like coach prime or something, any college sports content is just like not going to be seen. It's not shocking enough. It's not clickbaity enough. And we don't want to post just insane stuff just so that people who already follow us can see our tweets. Um, I don't know what y'all's algorithms are like, I kid you not, I'm not making this up. There's a video of a grandma snorting lines of cocaine that was fed to me on Twitter the other day. Yeah. And I, I like could not be less interested in that kind of content. Like I only use Twitter for college sports and a little bit of news. I was pretty impressive how she was lining those up, though. Uh, it was. And like I watched the video because it, it caught my attention. So I guess the algorithm is working in that respect. But I feel like people who follow us on Twitter, they want Texas Tech updates, not that. Yeah, as fascinating probably. as it might be. So all that to say, oh, I guess one last thing on X. X wants you, they're trying to kind of remake it to where content creators post directly through X. So they want you to start a Twitter newsletter. They're not going to let you build a newsletter outside of X. Uh, they want you to post videos on Twitter. They're not going to promote your YouTube links. So if we have a YouTube video we want to share with you and we post it on X, like three people are going to see it because they're going to throttle the engagement on that tweet. So uh, we've noticed a pretty big drop off in engagement and uh, we don't want to lean into the clickbait stuff just to be seen. So all that to say, we want you to see our podcasts directly. We want them to be easy to find. We don't want to be relying on Twitter to promote content that presumably you want to see if you're listening to this and already following us on these platforms. So we're still going to do two episodes per week. Sunday night, like this one, we'll do a live stream on across all these platforms, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. And then midweek, we're going to do a Patreon-only episode that is just for our subscribers. Uh, that podcast will be linked to, if you have a Spotify account, it can be linked directly to your Spotify feed. So if you listen to us on Spotify, that'll go directly there uh, via Patreon. So we've mentioned our Patreon before. It's $5 a month. Um, you get access to kind of a library of interviews we've conducted with former Texas Tech players, uh, members of the Board of Regents, former coaches. You get access to the Discord server, some written content that we're putting out there. And a new perk, you will get one episode per week that is available only to our Patreon subscribers.
So we're doing one on Dave Campbell's Republic of Football, one on Patreon, two per week. And last thing I'll say on this, I know that um, content consumers are inundated with a million different subscription opportunities, uh, newspapers, Netflix, all this stuff, other Patreon kind of podcasts or content creators. We know that you can't pay for every single one. So if you don't want to do that, it's understandable. We try to keep the cost as uh, low as possible so that hopefully it's not prohibitive for somebody to join if they want to consume that content. But we also know there's trade-offs. Like if you're doing ten month, $10 a month here, $10 a month there, you don't want to do another five. Understandable. And that's why we don't want to take away the public piece of this altogether. We're still going to be on Twitter and YouTube and uh, the Republic of Football feed. I think Twitter probably better for like actual live kind of in-game updates, maybe some threads here and there. But honestly, if you want kind of more direct line of contact, more direct engagement uh, with us and with other Texas Tech fans, best place to do that is probably in the Discord server, which you get access to as a Patreon subscriber. I think that covers it. I think so. And uh, we're really excited about it. Of course, again, just want to reiterate, still with the uh, Republic of Football feed, love Dave Campbell's. The Sunday episode will go out on Monday morning continually throughout the year. And then the Tuesday slash Wednesday slash Thursday episode will air. Uh, if you found us on Twitch, you could probably follow along on Twitch in the midweek and then it'll be up on uh, Patreon. Last thing, because I forgot to tie that all together at the end. You asked about the mailbag. Yeah. Right now, you can only ask questions via the mailbag uh, in Discord, but everybody gets to listen to the answers. And so if you're not sold yet on the idea of spending $5 a month on Patreon, you won't get to hear our opinion on food and music and if Taylor Swift is Yoko Ono or not, unless you subscribe to the Patreon, because the mailbag is going to move exclusively to the midweek episode. So all the questions and answers will be exclusive to our Patreon subscribers. It's good and bad because that's probably some of the worst content we put out there in terms of actually talking about Texas Tech sports. But it's also a direct member benefit now. If you want to steer the conversation a little bit, yeah. you can only do that if you're a member of Patreon. So, And I would assume the mailbag will get a little more free. We try to hold it back uh, because it's a public forum. But if it's a private forum, maybe we get a little uh, juicier with our answers. I will say on the Yoko Ono bit, uh, I'm not saying, I'm just saying maybe I'm turning towards your version a little bit because Travis Kelsey, the first time in eight seasons, did not get a 1,000 yards this year. You're turning more toward my version instead of like Taylor's version? Yes, yeah. My stance on this, if we make the AFC Championship game, I can live with that. Otherwise, I'm leaning into that bit for the rest of eternity. But anyway, appreciate everybody who's ever listened to this, whether on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, whatever. Um, thanks for following along and tuning in over the years. We've we've grown and changed a lot over that time. And like I said, we want to be responsive to listener feedback and uh, produce the best product that we can for y'all. So we love you and thank you. We're not going anywhere. Look forward to this next chapter with everybody, and we hope you'll join us. Patreon.com slash gambling gauchos. Final thoughts, money. If you go ahead and just.
bite the bullet, sign up for the Patreon. You can read some of my thoughts on Grant McCaslin's first team. Uh, that was specifically through the non-conference, but really enjoyed writing that one. Um, haven't written any sort of content in a long time, probably since I was with the Dallas Morning News. And I just like looked up and I was at 1,400 words. So it was a lot of fun. If you want to follow along with my stream of consciousness, I'm sure I'll have a lot more thoughts throughout the year, uh, maybe even doing some game ring caps of, of big games post game. So I would definitely suggest uh, getting on that. Sweet. Kyle, final thoughts? Any uh, Norwegian proverbs? Um, no. Do you want to do a Rahino ad real quick while I look this oh, up? Yeah. Uh, that's something I don't want to forget. Hey, every Thursday you can go eat a chicken fried steak as big as the tray. There at Rahino Barbecue, uh, Rahino Barbecue in Olton, Texas. You can also stop by the market and get some pre-cooked barbecue to take home, or just order—I don't know—two or three meals. Bring a cooler, bring it back with you there in Olton, Texas, on Seventh Street. If you used to go and take a right on Eight, that's now a left on Seventh. There, heading into Olton. Uh, wonderful, wonderful people there. Rahino Barbecue. Order online, RahinoBBQ.com, and it will be there when you're there. They're open five days a week, Tuesday through Saturday, seven days a week in the barbecue market if you want to stop by for, I don't know, a sandwich or some cold brisket for later. And that is Rahino Barbecue. Kyle, it's your turn. No fish without bones. Ingen fisk uten bein. In Norwegian. There's no fish without bones. It's, it says this Norwegian saying about life means that nothing in life comes easy. Yeah. You got to work for it. You ever had a pin bone in your salmon? Can't say I have. It's not, uh, it's not ideal. Hurt your mouth. Ingen fisk uten bein. Good luck, listener, tackling all the uh, bones and fish that will face you this week, but you can overcome them. That's my final thought. We'll recap Oklahoma State versus Texas Tech on Wednesday. They play on Tuesday, I believe, yes? Yep. Uh, Money, I'm going to get a score prediction from you as we as we close out here <laughs> on the spot. 72-67, Tech wins. I love it. That's the old, if you score 70, you win. I think a couple of coaches have said that uh, in the recent past with the defensive play. Kyle, you want to give a score prediction? 71-66. How about that? I'm just, go, I'm just going prices right style here. Yeah, $1, Bob. All right, that's all I got. All right, love you all.